Hi everyone and welcome to this edition of From the Lighthouse and this week we are moving from literature to the screen um, and we are looking at the recent, I think it's the fourth series of Sherlock um, that just recently aired in the UK and in America. Um, so we have a special guest here with us today and our special guest is actually secretly our producer, um, <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Dr. Jimmy Van, who teaches here at Macquarie University and um, Jimmy is an expert on detective fiction. His thesis was on detective fiction, so I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say. Um, but first of all, I think you had a question about the series, Michelle, that you'd like to start off with. Look, hi, Jimmy and Stephanie. And yes, look, I've been dying to talk about this series with someone, and I can't think of two better people um, <laughs> to have this conversation with. But given the genre of detective fiction relies so heavily upon misdirection, and one of the key ambivalences of the character of Sherlock Holmes is, does he feel or is he pure intellect? Has Cumberbatch's portrayal of Holmes, especially in the latest series, tipped the scales too far in the direction of a caring, loyal and indeed loving friend? Or is it the script that's doing that and Cumberbatch is doing his best to maintain that level of mystery through his peculiar, singular look? Well, I personally think that Cumberbatch's Sherlock, possibly through no fault of his own, because I think it is actually a good performance, but it's it's very much for me tending towards the, the touchy-feely in ways that I don't necessarily associate with Sherlock Holmes. Um, I think there is a, in the later series, there is a focus on his familial relationships and his, his emotions um, in ways that didn't quite work for me, especially in the, um, the, the final episode of the series. There is a, a heavy focus on his family and, and getting to that emotional side of his childhood. And I don't necessarily want to see that with, with Sherlock Holmes. I prefer the detached... Um, rational man of, of um, science and detection. I personally don't get as, as involved with the emotional side of Sherlock. <laughs> I think that's a really good point. Um, but I, I suppose I should also preface this by giving a huge spoiler warning for those who haven't seen the series. We're terribly sorry. Inevitably, we're going to have to give away some very, very big plot points. So if you are planning on watching the series, then maybe just pause this and go watch it. As big binge, ever, as, as we all do. <laughs> of course, Man. of course. You know, <laughs> I hate getting spoilers myself. Um, but one of the things that I was thinking about, Steph, while you were saying that, um, was I think Holmes found himself in this particular in that episode that you were talking about uh, in a situation that Holmes, the character, would normally never find himself in. Mm. You know, he was actually forced to make choices um, that were really, really difficult, mm. and. Um, I guess I was concentrating more on that mm. aspect uh, of the series rather than on the development of Holmes's character, which I thought had already been established fairly well in the first uh, two, not so much in the third series. I think the first two series really sort of encapsulates the character very well. Mm. I was really interested in that um, idea of if you have two really, really awful choices, you know, which would you choose and why mm. would you choose it? Uh, and I thought some of the choices he made um, were quite ingenious, um, and I was sort of uh, engaged from that perspective. Well, I guess that may, marks a sort of a shift, sort of, and when you think about that movement from sort of an aesthetic to a moral to an aesthetic to a moral, we're actually getting back into the realm of of, of the emphasis on the moral aspect of mm -hmm. crime, which I think is is a, is a fascinating thing to think about, especially in terms of the times that we live in, which you know are always in some sense mirrored by our cultural productions. I mean, I have to say I am with 
Stephanie here just mm -hmm. simply because I think that whenever I am looking for, uh, whether it's a text, a film um, that really engages me, the more levels of tension that I come across, the more highly engaged I am. And I felt that the more that uh, Holmes or Cumberbatch ceased to be a sort of a questionable character, where did he come from? What were his origins? Was he just put on the earth, you know, sort of um, in, in whole and complete? The more that all of that sort of um, became revealed, uh, I felt like a level of tension um, was taken away from me. I felt like I was being deprived mm. of the resistance that I wanted from Holmes, mm. um, which is the fact that you so desire him to care, and yet that last moment is that idea that he doesn't, mm. um, which always makes it perpetually fascinating. Um, to me. Well, I suppose we're entering then a, a different genre here, which is a very popular genre at the moment, which um, the backstory of the mm -hmm. hero, the uh, origin story, yeah. as they call it. Um, and in a way, you can sort of see this, uh, or the last episode, as an origin story for Sherlock Holmes. Um, and from what I'm gathering, both of you have a problem with the <laughs> fictional origin, yeah. in this case, of Sherlock Holmes. Um, as a fan, personally, of origin stories myself, I've always seen them as almost like fan fiction type. So it's always interesting for me to see what people have thought about mm. in trying to mould this character of Sherlock Holmes. It's not canonical and I don't think it, it, it ever is canonical. So I never sort of approached it in that mm. sense. And the series kind of primed me um, to think that way by never really staying true um, in terms of plot anyway to the actual original stories, but rather mm. staying true to the spirit. Uh, and I can see the argument that at the end it doesn't really stay true to, to the spirit of, of Holmes because, you know, Holmes is not really an emotional character. Uh, you know, there's just two things I'd love to, to sort of say there. You know, w one thing is that I, I'm, I'm fascinated by, you know, your sort of reading of uh, the latest series uh, on a, a, at a different, um, t taking it from a different approach. And I think one of the things that it does do um, that, that's actually pretty fascinating is that it presents us with a surplus of intellect. You know, like, there's a point at which it almost becomes farcical because it seems like there are more, you know, like there's his sister who's smarter than his brother who's smarter than Holmes and then you've got um, Moriarty and then you've got Mary Morstan. Thank God she died because, you know, quite frankly, I mean, Don't how many Irene smart Adler. people... Yeah, oh, yeah, Irene, Irene Adler. Adler. It's almost become so, a parody, isn't it? Yeah. How did these amazing once-in-a-generation minds all congregate together? Do, do you actually think it's possible that that's, that's sort of a deliberately subversive strategy on behalf of the writers, or do you think it's it's just sort of a plotting um, fiasco in, in some respect? I tend know? to, I, I mean, less probably generously than Jimmy, I, I tend to think <laughs> that might be a plotting fiasco. It's just, it, it appears to me that they, that they're trying to use, you know, the supposedly amazing intelligence that um, that um, Mycroft and, and Euros have over Sherlock as a kind of way to undermine Sherlock and suggest that he's actually the dumb one. Um, I, I thought they were trying to be clever with that and it didn't quite work for me. Uh -oh. <laughs> See, I thought the opposite, um, not necessarily that um, Holmes was smarter, but um, I thought what they were suggesting in that case was actually intelligence wasn't enough. Um, it was actually mm -hmm. Holmes's uh, ability to tap into some of his emotional reserve, mm. which the other two characters were not capable of doing. One then becomes like a sociopath, and the other one pretty much a borderline sociopath. Mm. Holmes is able to become an effective detective because he's able to at least sort of tap into some of those emotional reserves that the other two characters weren't able to do. Mm. Um, and I've always sort of felt that about Holmes in the original stories themselves as well. You know, I, I thought um, one of the things that um, I thought was very obvious about Holmes is that he 
tended to be a very you know, liminal character. Mm-hmm. He was somebody who could understand criminals and understood them very, very well. But he also had enough knowledge of, for lack of a better word, normal human society <laughs> to be able to bridge that gap between those two extremes. Yeah. And so that's where he's sort of situated. I was wondering whether it was, you know, because, I mean, in some sense it's that fascinating um, identification or sort of fusing of two intellects where, you know, sort of the detective actually has to model and in a sense give form to the original uh, and, I guess, chaotic act of murder. So, Mm. you you know, you sort of, on one hand, you have this fascinating doubling of that crime by the detective needing to relive it uh, and yet, on the other hand, um, you know, we have this sort of, I think, almost um, superego need to uh, um, apply the social order. So I always wondered whether it was that tension between the social order and the sort of psychological um, mapping uh, that the detective does that was sort of fascinating about Doyle, uh, Doyle's Holmes more than actually, you know, his empathy or ability to, to, to sort of morally um, locate himself. Well, see, that's what I was really missing from this season. I was missing the crime. Yeah. I wanted to see him in a straightforward fashion solve crimes in his flamboyant, amazing way. I really, I mean, I I really miss that kind of brilliance. And and in the first, um, the first episode, we get that kind of montage where he solves crimes very quickly, and it left me really frustrated because I wanted to know about those crimes. And in the the second um, episode, we had a more kind of straightforward crime story, although it wasn't, again, it wasn't that straightforward. Um, But then in the third episode, again, we moved away from that solving of crimes, and that's what I really miss about Holmes. I just wanted to see him solve some crimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, look, I I think it was kind of like a a, a sort of a hybrid genre merge where. was something mm. between detective fiction and, and soap opera. Yeah, it, it did have a soap opera element that, that, that kind of irritated me because I just wanted to go back to, but when's he going to be brilliant? <laughs> when is he going to be the brilliant um, the brilliant detective? And to go back to your point, Jimmy, there on origin stories, I actually felt like I was watching a superhero narrative with this with this show. It was a, I agree that the last episode was an origin story. Um, even the way the physicality of Holmes that they played up in this season, I thought was trying to make him into a kind of superhero. And I think there are elements of the superhero in the original um, kind of Doyle um, representation of, of Holmes, but I really feel that they played that up at the, to the detriment of, of the mind and the brilliant mind. I, I think it's interesting you should say that because um, I think it was Isaac Asimov who incidentally was a huge fan of Sherlock Holmes. Mm. He was one of the original uh, members of the um, uh, Baker Street Irregulars, I think it was mm. called uh, the club. He wrote an article in which he proposed that Sherlock Holmes is the first superhero yeah. to, mm. and, you know, to ever appear, and, and he lists all the quality that makes Holmes uh, a superhero as such. Um, and it's not sort of an uncommon idea with detective fiction. You think about the character mm. of um, you know, Poirot. His first name, Hercule Poirot, is you know, Hercules. He's meant to be, mm. in a way, uh, uh, another manifestation of Hercules himself. So the detective, I think, can be seen very uh, easily as a superhero figure. And certainly, Cumberbatch's performance of Sherlock uh, puts him into that superhero realm. I mean, he's got all these girls going absolutely ballistic over him. Which and he still, punches people. And, and he punches yeah. people. You know, he's got this superhuman strength almost yeah. at times. He defies death. Yeah. Um, and he's just, uh, he's a very, very unusual character you know, in that sense. Well, I guess you're just making me think of the Robert, Robert Downey Jr. Mm. Um, portrayal in terms of, I mean, obviously, there, right there, we've got a sort of um, that 
uh, what American um, yeah. vision of detective uh, fiction, which obviously has its own uh, features in terms of, I mean, you've got Marlowe and yeah. all, yeah. all of that. Um, so, I mean, in terms of uh, those two uh, sort of figures, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm just uh, uh, sort of bemused by um, what they're saying about the times that we're living in. Because mm. um, I always, uh, as I think a uh, question that, uh, that I thought to put to you both was, I mean, what does it actually say about our times, about the evolution of the de- detective novel and its hero, uh, who, as Dra- Margaret Drabble so eloquently puts it, has traditionally been defined as remote from the common herd, but the emotional depth of the detective has become so central. Um, you know, the, the psychology or, you know, the, the sort of the inner landscapes that we're so hungry to, to mine. Um, which I think actually does also impact on the way we read the originals, you know, in, in terms of the fact of, I think, you know, sort of our hunger for the Sherlock Holmes um, that, that Doyle gives us uh, is in some way, um, and I think Bourguet says the same thing, you know, detective, uh, de- the detective genre relies peculiarly upon that readership to, to create, mm-hmm. you know, sort of, um, to, to create that particular sort of uh, tension um and and yeah i just love that notion that we're probably um sort of there's so much of our own input into that hunger um for sherlock holmes to be more than just that you know sort of rather mm. um in many respects thinly portrayed character of doyle i think that's where um fans actually come into this season because i i felt as i was watching it that it was a, a season of, of television that was geared towards fan service so there was this um, real focus on the on the Holmes Watson emotional engagement, which of course there is in the in the novels as well. But I felt that they were playing up um, the the incidents that happened, particularly the death of Mary, were designed not to be kind of important elements in themselves, but just to drive a wedge between Holmes and Watson, so that we could delve down and have some really emotional scenes between the two men. And and I felt that it was um, very much written to appeal to a certain type of fan who is very interested in that relationship and that central relationship between Holmes and Watson. And so it didn't... The events seemed to me to be just tools in order to drive that kind of interpersonal drama in ways that I felt didn't necessarily add anything to the show for me personally because I felt that um, while I accept that the Holmes-Watson relationship is absolutely central to the books, I didn't. I felt it was tipping into melodrama, it was tipping into soap opera in ways that I felt didn't actually um, add anything or, or complicate our picture of the detective. And possibly, too, um, is a result of maybe the marvelization of, of contemporary pop culture. It seemed to me to be um, very much in the kind of Marvel school of, of um, superhero storytelling really Watson so there versus was Holmes. yeah it was it was like captain america civil war in a way <laughs> um and you knew that they would be that they would be reunited i mean there was never any question that they would come back together so there is you know after uh, mary dies um what uh, sorry watson blames Holmes um initially for the death but then you know that it's only a matter of time till they come back together so you think what am i 
what am I doing here? <laughs> you know, why is all of this drama being kind of generated? The predictability, the predictability, yeah. and and I think also that it becomes derivative, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and what we're really hungering for is a story that resists us, as opposed to one that caters to us. And I wonder if the, because I'm not sure whether the response among you know those um, yeah. mythical, uh, you fans. know, sort of fans yeah. <laughs> is one of you know, um, are they enjoying it as much now that they're getting what they want? Or was it actually a, a sort of a, a, a perversely more pleasurable experience? And I think that perversity is a really important element of detective fiction. Mm. I mean, I can't remember the name of the... And you probably you may well know it, Jimmy. <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot. But you know the guy, and it would have been said more than once, but that the very first uh, detective stories is, is, is Sophocles' Oedipus. Oedipus. Mm. Um, and, you know, so right there from, the, from, from, you know, sort of that very moment, it's, it's about transgression. It's, mm. it's about, you know, sort of our desire for the person who saves us not to be perfect, but in actual fact mm. to be tinged with that original sin, mm. you know, which I, I think that without that, we're left with something really flat and kind of ordinary and overproduced and frustrating. You know, just and overly complex, my oh. gosh. Anyway, but, I think but, we should ask Jimmy the actual no, no, fan. No, no, but, no, well, no, I was just thinking two points I do want to address. Um, the first one with, with Oedipus, if, if we draw uh, the origin story of detective or the, uh, you know, one of the earliest detective figures as Oedipus, then we do come across a problem uh, that both of you might have in terms of um, the current Sherlock's probably being truer to the origin of detective fiction because uh, Oedipus' detective story is a self-discovery story. Mm -hmm. He is the detective and criminal of his actions. Mm -hmm. So it is a story about detection as also a form of self-actualization, self-discovery, self-recognition. And so in that sense, I think the current Sherlock series does follow that model quite Mm -hmm. well. It is about Sherlock now. The the ultimate case for Sherlock is himself. He needs to find out who he is how he has become the way he is. Mm. Uh, and it's a product, in a way, of his own um, mental facilities. He did it to himself. He was the one who blocked his own memories off in the same way that Oedipus very much does. I just sort of saw that connection now. What are you talking about Oedipus, actually? <laughs> it just sort of occurred to me right now. Well, well no, I'm just, yeah. now I'm really fascinated because do you think that this latest series has actually enables those sorts of readings? Do you think that there, I, do, I do think you think it, it does? I think it does because I think... Um, Going back to Steph's point about uh, Watson and Holmes uh, and, and and the friction between them, uh, and us knowing that they will, you know, inevitably have, have to get together at the end. Um, I have read all the Holmes stories, not out of free will, although I probably would have done it out of free will anyway. Um, <laughs> but I had to do it for my thesis. Uh, and one of the things that struck me in the later story is that they do go their separate ways at the end. Um, there is, uh, I think, two or three stories at the end where Watson doesn't appear. Uh, and in fact, Holmes actually talks about Watson no longer being there anymore, either through his death uh, or whatever. And there's also a reference to um, Mary Mawson's death as well and um, Watson grieving over her death. There's never been a connection between those two events, you know, that mm. the separation of the uh, Watson and Holmes with Mawson's death. Um, so in a way, I sort of saw this series as kind of putting some of those connections, which we never got in the short story, probably because, you know, Dorr never meant to put those connections there mm. to begin with. They were always there just as little crumbs for us to pick up on. Um, and I think what the series does particularly well is to pick up a lot of those, not just this uh, this season, but the entire series, mm. is to pick up a lot of those little crumbs that those who have read Holmes quite closely 
would have gotten and, and, and thought, oh, wow, that's, that's rather clever, you know, I never sort of saw it. So it rewards way. that kind of knowledge, that detailed knowledge of the story. Yeah. yeah, and so when I, I watched that scene, I, I sort of thought, you know, is this how they're going to end the series? Are they actually going to end it in a rather negative note mm. that, you know, Holmes and Watson do go their separate ways? So I'm sorry, I did mention spoiler at the beginning. You know, that's <laughs> yeah. a huge spoiler for the books. <laughs> I should have mentioned I'll, I'll also spoil the books <laughs> if that's the case. Uh, and it's a rather sad story, I think, that particular one at the end. I think it's called The Lion's Mane. Yeah. Uh, and it's an old Holmes, um, and Watson's no longer around. Um, and you feel his absence keenly. Mm. Uh, in that story. Because critical responses to later uh, homes are that, you know, sort of hit the weaker, mm. um, the, the, those, the weakest links are the ones where Watson is absent and it's as though um, without Watson, um, Doyle has in some sense allowed his... Uh, because he was a, but yeah, and, and he was a conservative, mm. you know, sort of on so many levels. Mm. Um, it's, it's as though without that sort of um, fascinating intersubjectivity mm. um, that occurred when there were there were two sort of characters feeding off each other. It's as though yeah. that uh, com- that added layer of complexity, that sort of buffer, um, that obviously Watson sort of uh, allowed. Um, allowed for in, in um, Holmes's behaviour yeah. disappeared, and and the whole book was that those later books were left. Yeah, I mean, I, I was speaking to Lee Lee O'Brien yesterday, uh, and she made a really really good point. I thought she said um, Doyle made a mistake. You know, if you want to stop writing Sherlock Holmes, he shouldn't have killed off Holmes. He should have killed off Watson. Because mm-hmm. you know, without Watson, the Holmes story would have just died a natural death mm, anyway. That's brilliant, isn't it? You know, uh, and I think that's true. Uh, and I think we would have felt that in the series too. If Watson disappears, then mm. that's it. That's that's pretty much the end of the, the Holmes. Oh series. yeah, no, that that is actually brilliant. Mm. Lee needs to start writing because if you yeah. think about it, you get that beautiful unfinished ending that is a more powerful ending than uh, than that neat you know sort of cut off mm. um, which is the death of Holmes you know like it, it's that proper ending where you have that sense of that lone figure yeah. um, continuing on afterwards yeah. and it, it's, it's funny that that's the, the one thing that has been consistent for me throughout the seasons notwithstanding my, my disappointment with the, with the latest series mm. which I believe I described to a friend as a hot mess <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the, the one consistent thing has been Martin Freeman's performance as Watson which I think is brilliant and for me he absolutely encapsulates Watson in a way that although I enjoy Cumberbatch as a Sherlock, for me Freeman's performance as Watson is perfect he is in exactly as I envisage Watson in the novels mm-hmm. even though he has been transformed to a contemporary setting and there's much more focus on, on that relationship in, in ways that I think tip into melodrama, Martin Freeman consistently works for me so that's the even though I've been kind of down about the series I do enjoy watching it because I do enjoy those that performance especially. Do you know I always really really enjoy Moriarty's performance. Oh Moriarty um, is brilliant too. <laughs> like I yeah. actually just find it breathtaking to the point where all else that's going on sort of drops away for those moments where I'm just watching him and when do he what says do you miss me I yes <laughs> I do <laughs> I mean there's even um, a scene uh, in the last episode where he, he makes that um, sort of cameo appearance yeah. uh, to the song uh, to Queen's was I Want to Break Free I Want to Break Free it was, it was oh, brilliant and it was a moment of laughing yeah. a lot of people just started laughing during that scene because it, it's and almost like in, seeing an, an old 
it's a nasty friend. <laughs> yes, it's an old nasty friend. And I think that that last episode is so kind of melodramatic and, you know, tension is heightened and there's these life and death scenarios going on. You need that kind of release into into the, the brilliant kind of high camp of Moriarty. There are so few people who can pull that off. And I just absolutely, um, mm. yeah, I was in his thrall, mm. th- you know, throughout. Um, and including the point at which, you know, sort of those... Uh, and I, I think in terms... I mean, things that they did really well... Um, you know, because they really did employ so many really profound tropes. I mean, that final um, that final episode taking place on on, on that sort of Alcatraz like island, um, where you know, once immediately all of us are just going island. it's it's that sort of world within a world. It's it's, it's that, and then you know, the way that it's interrupted by um, and and even it's sort of on a temporal level. With um, you know, sort of the the, the pre-recorded messages coming through from mm. Moriarty, mm. Um, you, you know, like in 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 terms of um, you know, sort of plotting and planning. I mean, it it, it, it is a masterful. Mm. Um, it, it's 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 absolutely brilliant in yeah. many respects. I mean, it's it? interesting that you guys had more of a, a problem with this current series, um, which I didn't have as much of a problem with. Uh, mm. I think there are issues. I had actually more of a problem with the ending of the previous series. Oh yes, with, with the Rock and Buffalo. Um, no, no, not the Rock and Buffalo. With um, what's his name? Oh, God, I forgot his name. The um, the guy with the, the, the glasses. Um, you know, Holmes ends up killing him at the end. Oh yes, yes, I've forgotten his name too. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's terrible. Oh, that's three of us. I'm blank. Oh, yeah. no, we're we're bad podcasters thing. this week. Sorry, yeah, we guys. are. <laughs> not well researched. Sorry. You know, spur the moment thought. Um, but with his death. Um, I thought that was a bit of cheating mm. yeah, and I thought that was something that Holmes would never do Holmes would always figure a way out without having to kill you know, the, the criminal mm. and in this case he had to kill the criminal um, and there was nothing else he could do and I thought, I thought that was cheating and I thought that wasn't really true to the spirit uh, of the story and so when I entered this series I guess I was already disillusioned <laughs> by that particular Maybe um, it's expectation. You're going yeah. in expecting to be disappointed. <laughs> yeah, so I, I sort of went uh, into this series not having as high of an expectation um, as other people possibly did. You know, when you take on these really sort of iconic um, sort of figures, everything that they do is incredibly loaded. Mm. And and I think, you know, I, I'm, I agree with you with that um, killing of the character, the unnamed character. Um, we've obviously blanked it from our minds. It's, yeah, it's, 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 it's too disturbing. Yeah, um, because I think it's also similar to that, um, what was that, the, you know, the um, the Mockingbird, sort of the Hunger Games, yeah. where we end up in a, in a, in a situation where for years and years and years uh, sort of murder was never the answer mm. and all of a sudden it is the answer mm. which I think mm. is kind of chilling in the times that we live in yeah. and I think it was sort of it, for me that was a moment that I think needed to be resisted on so many levels yeah mm. and you know uh, for a series that had prided itself I thought on uh, sticking to the spirit not necessarily the plot of the mm. original story mm. I thought that wasn't actually true to the spirit of the original story either because mm. in the original story um not necessarily Mary Morstan, but the Mary Morstan sort of uh, replacement character mm. uh, was the one who killed that unnamed character who I'm absolutely ashamed I cannot remember and my internet's not working so I can't even sort of look it up right now. Well, why, well while Jimmy is berating himself for his faulty memory, <laughs> can we just talk about the female characters on the yeah, show? Yeah, because yeah. The, that this is one of my 
complaints about the show from the very beginning. Um, even though I quite enjoyed the first couple of seasons, um, the female characters to me are only ever ciphers. Mm -hmm. They exist merely to provide some kind of drama for the the central two, but in the in the case of the last episode, the central three male characters, including Mycroft in that. Um, and to me, Mary Red is completely unbelievable. Um, and I was incredibly mm, irritated yeah. at what they did with Molly. I feel I, I really connected with the Molly <laughs> character initially, and I felt terrible at what they did where they were, um, just to explain, so again, spoilers, um, one of the tasks that, that Sherlock has to perform is that he has to get Molly to say, I love you, um, mm. or, or he believes that she'll be blown up. And it was just, it appeared to me to be a scene designed to kind of embarrass her in this kind of terrible way, and then it was just left unresolved. Um, I completely and utterly agree with you there because that is actually the ultimate humiliation for a mm. character, isn't it? And it was in every respect unnecessary. Yeah, um, I, don't, I don't know why it needed to be there. It, it, was, it didn't seem to drive anything besides humiliating this character. And it was fascinating that they did end up coming up, whether or not they'd received criticism about, you know, sort of their, mm. their female characters and so they thought coming up with a even more brilliant, though definitely disturbed, um, yeah. you know, definitely, definitely disturbed um, sister was the answer to, to, to this criticism mm. because uh, I think there was a lot, and in actual fact the character who nearly undoes him within the police force mm. um, was also... A, 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 a female detective mm. um, so there is a troubling sort of representation of women and, and I wonder if there is sort of some um, some sort of uh, wall around imagining um, you know sort of a, 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 a fictional world where um, having a, a very full female character doesn't in actual fact um, prevent mm. an exploration of masculinity because yeah. it seems to me that this series does actually suggest that it's a one or other, you know, it's it's an either or rather than, you know. Um, what did you think of Irene Adler? Well, I, I quite enjoyed the portrayal of Irene Adler. I thought it was um, it was quite fun performance, and I I thought that that was handled in a kind of light, kind of slightly you know, quite sexy way but I d at the same time I, I still have this problem with all of the female characters that are just designed to motivate something so for, for Sherlock Irene Adler exists as a kind of um, the only kind of hint at a sexuality there mm. um, which is heterosexual which interestingly is, enough yeah, as well yeah exactly mm. and, then, and it's you know to tether in this show that has a lot of fans of that of that central male relationship it seems mm. to sort of titillate this heterosexual relationship but also you know Mary's death for example, is just there to cause conflict between Holmes and Watson. Mm -hmm. And again, I felt like Irene Adler existed in the series to create some kind of like, oh, sex exists moment for, for Sherlock. Um, and, you know, Molly, again, it existed to cause a kind of conflict for Sherlock at the end. And even his sister, Euros, is, exists to, you know, help him get to grips with his childhood trauma. I don't feel like they were ever given embodiment as characters. They existed as ciphers to provoke him or mm. to provoke Watson. Um, and they didn't sort of exist in their own kind of universe by themselves. Well, there is one. Mrs. Hudson. Mrs. The, Hudson. The I forgot her. Mrs. I love, Hudson. I do yeah, love she, Mrs. She Hudson. is... Oh, yeah, her that. getting out of that car. 
Perfect. Fantastic. <laughs> Her vacuuming while the yeah. bomb's about to go off. Which I think is actually evidence that there was the potential for that sort yeah. of representation of characters. You I, know. Think, I think part of the issue is the source material itself. Mm. You know, Holmes, um, the, the entire Holmes story has always been criticised for being you know, heavily uh, male-centric. Mm. Uh, and there isn't a lot of female characters and they either appear as uh, victims or dead bodies or yeah mm. kind of the dead body at the yeah, beginning yeah, yeah wh- whatever the case they may be but mm. they're never really um sort of fleshed out um and that's why i've, I've always loved the irene adler character um, mm. even in the original story i mean she was my favorite character in the original story and she became my favorite character in the series because i thought you know it was just a wonderful uh, depiction of what a, of what a modern day mm. irene adler could potentially be yeah, yeah. my only objection to that series uh, to that episode as much as i love that episode it's probably my favorite episode actually um is that I think Conan Doyle did the, did the one thing that actually kind of redeems him against that sort of criticism, whereas the series, I can see, sort of falls flat on that, mm-hmm. which is that um, in, in the original story, Irene Adler does beat Holmes, mm-hmm. uh, and the story ends with her very, very clearly outwitting Holmes, mm-hmm. and that's it. Whereas in the series, he kind of saves her at the end, mm-hmm. and, and that kind of I loved it because, you know, I'm a little bit of a sap and I like romanticism. I was like, oh, isn't that lovely? (laughs) You know, so I loved it for that aspect. But the intellectual side of me says, well, she didn't quite beat him then, did she? You know, she kind of ends up, you know, um, at his mercy in a way, you know, um, being protected by him. Whereas uh, in the original story, uh, she is in control of her own destiny. She walks away from there and leaves him a very, very smart letter to say, you know, close but yeah. not close enough <laughs> <laughs> well I mean even Eurus is the same as that because you know she's presented as this this brain that outstrips um, Sherlock and Mycroft by mm. a long way um, but at the end she's you know vulnerable to him and really all she wants is a hug <laughs> um, and that really kind of irritated me because I thought you know why can't I mean obviously I understand from like a show running perspective and especially if this as it seems like it might be the last series it seemed kind of to hint towards that and Cumberbatch is a big star now, so maybe it is. Um, so, I mean, I get why it had to end with, you know, Holmes coming to the assistance of his sister, but I just felt that it it undermined her intelligence to have her, her problem essentially being, oh, my big brother didn't kind of give me enough hugs. I felt that that was a real kind of... Um, it, it worked against this in massive intelligence that Eurus um, has demonstrated to have. Not that I think that, you know, you can't be vulnerable and be very intelligent obviously he can be but it just sort of seemed to undermine that kind of um, representation of a really really clever really switched on woman um, that she all her problem was is that she wanted her big brother to hang around her more and not hang around with his mate and also I think the, the other really big problem with that is that you know sort of the ending failed to provide us with that twist yeah. You know, like, where was that final twist where, as we thought, it was all about that hug? Oh, no, look at her. She's out, you know, riding the moors, or, you know, mm. sort of on a, on a, on a, on a, on a you know, bareback yeah. stallion, you yeah, know, escaping. Right. Because, well, right. Well, I thought the twist was actually the, uh, the little girl's story, you know, the, 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 the little girl on the plane, yeah. which mm. was a, a metaphor for Euros's uh, intelligence mm. in itself. So she was the little girl. Which, unfortunately, I figured out at the beginning. Mm. Um, having mm. read too many, I guess, detective stories, I sort of went, that's Euros. Um, mm. I have no idea why I did that, so it wasn't much of a twist for me. It wasn't much of a surprise. Yeah, I figured out that it was Eurus. I didn't. I didn't quite get how it worked. I didn't mm. get that it was like this metaphor that she made up in her mind, which again I thought was 
mm. kind of stretching thing. Stretching. Well, which which is connected mm. by the imagery we constantly have of her, you know, flying that flying that pla- toy plane by herself. Yeah, that's you know, true. In those flashbacks. That's true. So I, I think that's one of the things that sort of uh, triggered in my mind. I thought, you know, that that little girl and the little girl flying with the plane. I think that they're one of the same. So yeah. this might actually be a question of emphasis in terms of I think that could have been a really fascinating metaphor had it not mm. have been given so much emphasis. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like if yeah. it had it been, had no subtlety. Yeah. Yeah, like if it had have just been part of a bigger picture, you know, of of, er- of Eros actually, you know, sort of having a master plot or something like mm. that. But I think as an end in itself, I don't think it withstood the pressure. Um, mm. Well, my, the my issue with it was that um, there was a sort of a neglect of Mycroft. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there, there are two brothers there. You know, Mycroft is, is, right. is the elder brother and Sherlock is the, the youngest of the three. Uh, and... She seems to be gravitated towards Sherlock, but mm-hmm. there's absolutely no mention of Mycroft, who is incidentally the one who actually put her away in this mm-hmm. you know, sort yeah, of island absolutely. prison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, why is she not angry with Mycroft? Why is she constantly you know, obsessed with Sherlock, as almost every single character on this show mm-hmm. seems to be you know, obsessed mm-hmm. with Sherlock? Mm-hmm. Um, and Mycroft, who's meant to be the smarter, the um, more successful, presumably, mm-hmm. character, he's just sort of push onto the sidelines. And, and you think that she would be more angry because yes. he's the one who put her in this yeah. situation and, and keeps kind of dangling yeah. treats that... I mean, if I was uh, the evil genius, he'd be the one I'd go after, not, I, I know, I would not be my poor unsuspecting be... younger brother who Absolutely. I've traumatised for life. Absolutely. <laughs> and, I was, and, and was my intellectual inferior by yeah. a long way. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I would be furious at Mycroft. I wouldn't be at all concerned with Sherlock. So I didn't think that that kind of motivation didn't really work for me. Um, and I, yeah, again, I thought the metaphor was sort of stretching the lines of credulity there and, mm. um, not much about the Euro storyline really worked for me, I have mm. to say. I feel like I'm very down on this show at the moment. But also the, the other, the kind of structural problem I had mm. is that, and I have this problem with these, these same showrunners writing Doctor Who. That's sort of by the by. <laughs> Let's um, name them, Steph. Let's name them. The story, the, the storylines to me are so convoluted. Yep, yep, yep. In yep, ways yep. that, I don't find very useful. Now, I know that a detective fiction is often quite complex and the plots are um, complex and multi... They have Mm. multi-strands and they have red herrings and all the classic kind of detective fiction um, conventions. But for me, these storylines just seemed to stretch the limits of credulity and so I was never able to let go and just go along with it and say, okay, well, he's got this this crazy scheme that he's going to do and he's he seems like he's strung out on drugs in the second episode, for example, but in fact he's got this, you know, master plan that he's got, you know, bubbling along. It just felt to me to be overly complex in ways that I couldn't go along with. So I don't know if you feel the same way about the complexity of the plots. Yeah, I feel like they're too much for me. <laughs> Look, because I, I do really think that there's a difference between a convoluted plot and a complex plot. Mm. And, I, and I think that what we felt was that things, as you say, not only stretched the credulity, but they were piled on as opposed to creating that sense of a really textured narrative mm. with sort of subtext and, and, you know, sort of profound threads that as they were sort of um, brought to light sort of ignited as mm. opposed to just because I, I always have this thing that I think as a reader you should never be scr- scratching your head and asking really mm. you know like as soon as you start doing can I believe this it's actually failed 
Well, I mean that that for me when he appears on the boat and mm. he all of a sudden Sherlock is standing like he's he's Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean on the top of the boat <laughs> going to this island and you think where on earth has he come from? And yep. it's never answered, and it's never answered how... Because they exploded out the window, so for all we know, they actually did just go from that window Go. and were shot all the way onto the boat. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, there is never... And, and I'm like, I, no. I know that but possibly that that's a boring storyline, but they just don't even bother to fill in that kind of, you know, how do you appear on this boat in the yeah. middle of the ocean? Somehow. Unless, of course, we have another, um, you know, sort of all of that um, island is actually the afterlife. Oh, possibly. <laughs> Which is about the only explanation for being, um, you know, sort of blown out of a pretty small room by a very powerful explosive. And, then, and um, surviving unscathed and then all of a sudden turning up in the middle of the ocean yeah. without any discernible way of getting there. So perhaps none of us <laughs> have actually um, reached the reading where it is all um, and yet they were dead. Yes, <laughs> that's right. This is all a hallucination. Well, I suppose, you know, part of the other issue is that um, the Holmes stories do do that. You know, Holmes does miraculously mm-hmm. appear uh, out of nowhere. The, the obvious example there is the Reichenbach Fall. Uh, you know, I, I can see somebody and surviving the Reichenbach Fall. <laughs> I know it's ridiculous, but I can actually <laughs> I, I can actually imagine, you know, in that freak of nature, riding those falls and just... Clinging onto a rock with one finger. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 that, that one there I'm accepting. Well, now, whether it's because I'm used to that, you mm-hmm. know, whether that's such a well-worn trope that we actually accept people falling off falls That's as a soap possible. opera thing, though. Mm. To go back to our point about yeah. it being a soap mm. opera, you know, the the character that you think must be dead mm. and yet somehow isn't, you know, <laughs> and it turns out five years later when the actor realises <laughs> that they don't have a career outside of soap operas and come, and come back. <laughs> but we do have a reversal of that um, in Moriarty. That's true. Who we thought had actually did come back but, but actually didn't. didn't. No. Yeah. yeah, that's true. And I was actually, even though I love Moriarty, as I said, and I love that performance, I'm glad that they actually have kept him dead. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that was um, necessary. I think um, a lot of the issues with the series um, are actually the writer's way of trying to uh, stay true to some of the elements of the series. So a lot of things that you guys have discussed and sort of pointed out I can probably say the same thing about the original short stories. Mm. You know, they, they sort of occurred in the original short stories, um, and yet we're much more forgiving of yes. the stories <laughs> than we are of these particular series. Uh, and I guess my perspective is a little bit different because I've never sort of had an issue with um, adaptations that veer fairly far away from, from mm. the original source. For example, one of my favourite um, Sherlock Holmes, not necessarily adaptation, but certainly story. Uh, is one with uh, Ian McKellen um, called Mr. Holmes, in which he plays a geriatric Holmes. Oh, that's right. I did hear of that. And yeah. it was absolutely superb. Like, I really loved it. Uh, there is a bit of sentimentality in there, um, and I'm sorry to say Watson does not appear Ooh, in this, in this story. Because he's, yeah. I think he's, um, Holmes is 80 in this story, 80 or 90. Yeah, like um, Watson's yeah. dead already, uh, and pretty much all the characters are dead. Holmes is the only one alive, yeah. uh, and he's keeping bees in his retirement and he's trying to figure out his memory's going incidentally so mm-hmm. he's got like some sort of dementia or something like that and before he dies he wants to figure out one particular case that has been haunting him and it's a case that uh, as Watson wrote it has been solved and completed but he knows that that's not the way the original story mm. or that's not the so way so you've already got layers happening there you've yeah. already got mm. them there and it's about it's you know, sort of delving into yeah. the memory it's about um, actually he, Holmes learns something about himself in that process as, as well 
And I thought that was one of the most beautiful films I had seen that year. It wasn't a detective fiction story, um, mm. not in the sense of, you know, there's a crime. I mean, there was a crime, but it wasn't truly detective. It was more of a, almost like a literary uh, story. But that comes back to that sort of concept between convoluted and complex, mm. doesn't it? Where you sort of have, um, you know, sort of layering of intentions as opposed to just, um, you know, sort of multiple plots getting wilder Plot and elements. wilder. Yeah yeah, 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 which I think, because, you know, the moment that you, 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 you gave me that sort of, um, you know, sort of frame... I'm already sort of Googling <laughs> where I can watch that because yeah. I, I, it, it's got me right on that conceptual level. Um, well, you can watch it on Canopy, the, the university's uh, free streaming service. Oh, there you go. Yes. Excellent advice for our listeners too. Yes. Actually, the, the, the episode that alerted me to that, that, that kind of made me first think of that problem with you know too many plot elements, is the, the episode in which they tried to explain how Holmes survived. Um, where instead of actually answering the question of how Holmes survived, Mm. they just provided you with a series of increasingly lurid and unbelievable possibilities for how Sherlock survived. And I felt Mm. like they were playing with the audience in ways that really irritated me with that and just made me think, there's too much plot here. There needs to be some kind of excavation of plot so that we can let the story breathe. Well, that's what I felt about that episode where Mm. Holmes killed Charles Augustus Magnuson. There we go. I like it how all three of those names occurred to you in the one moment. It came with Charles, and then Augustus just came naturally after. Amazing that. how the mind works. Yes, <laughs> uh, yes, it came with. Uh, I thought it was too convoluted, uh, and it got to a stage where it forced Sherlock to do the only thing left yeah. for him to do. Whereas in the original story, it didn't get to that stage. You know, Holmes had actually set it up in a way where mm. he was going to be able to to get the criminal, but then um, uh, the victim then came forward. And, kill the criminal herself mm. because she was sort of sick of it but then Holmes being judge and jury sort of says you know what justice has prevailed and walked off as if he never saw anything so I thought it was a much more satisfying ending to that story than what the series did which mm, sort of absolutely. made everything so overly complex that mm. um, by the end you're left with this one decision and you're left very very unsatisfied and in fact it took um, you know like a deus ex machina to bring Holmes mm. back which mm. is Moriarty's yep. resurrection. Yeah. You know, suddenly Moriarty's back alive. Oh, and we need Holmes back again. We can't yeah. deport him. He needs to come back. But yeah, he's also, on, the, phone. He's yeah. on the, the plane for three three seconds. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but it was also relying on the peculiar medium of film as well for that to work. Do you know what mm. I mean in, in terms of... Um, it's the way things that rely on CGI cease to have impact on you because you mm. know that it's just a playing with images really and, mm. and I felt like it was sort of a montage of you know sort of moments which were none of them um, satisfying mm. um, and all of them were taking me out of that um, you know sort of psychological um, drama that mm. I was there for. Yeah they were reminding you that this was nothing really mm. <laughs> yeah I mean that, that goes back to um, to Jimmy's point about why do we watch adaptations like it seems to me that from this conversation that thinking about myself I very much <laughs> are on the side of originality and, and you know the faithfulness <laughs> question um, whereas perhaps Jimmy is happier with a kind of looser um, spirit of things well I like what detective fiction is capable of you know, mm. I like thinking about taking detective fiction beyond just simply stories about solving crimes but yeah. now looking at how that sort of detection process can be applied to other things too mm. and I think it can be uh, and that's why I, I, I thought, you know, Mr. Holmes is so brilliant because it did take things to that other level. Uh, in a, and in a way, returning it back to that Oedipus 
uh, example that we're talking about. It's mm -hmm. you, know, you know our own lives should be the best form of you know um, case that we should be looking at. Uh, and in fact, you know, just to try to end on another wonderful detective fiction story, <laughs> uh, another one I read was um, uh, what was it? Something, uh, crap, my mind's gone. It was a novel by Peter Dickinson, and I can't remember the, the title for the life of me, but it was about a woman who was dying. Uh, of some sort of motor neuron disease where her body was slowly shutting down and by the time the story started the only thing she could do left was uh, anything from her neck upwards right. um, but she can't speak sorry from her nose upward I think it was so she yeah. didn't blink uh, and she saw something on the news which um, recollected a memory of a crime mm -hmm. oh, wow. and through her blinking and her nurse <laughs> she has to try to piece together the puzzles and her memory in order to figure out what's going on and in doing that she has to relive her life and relive some of those traumatic wow. memories and it was just one of the most brilliant books that I've read uh, and it was sort of uh, marketed as detective fiction as a very strange type of detective fiction yeah. but when you read it it's actually quite an uh, elegiac and beautiful story about yeah. you know sort of that last moment of your life and trying to figure out the one unresolved thing mm. in your life and others you know a wonderful metaphor for what uh, detection can be well, I think that's a nice note to end it on, um, the idea that detection isn't just about solving crimes. Um, so thank you to Jimmy for joining us today, and thanks to Michelle for being here with me, and as always. And thank you to Stephanie for no, hosting, as usual. No worries. Um, we'll see you next time with more discussions about books and all things literary. Thank you. <laughs>